Today is the first Sunday of July, and over July and August, we are doing a, a new series. We're looking at a new book. We're, we're beginning a series uh, consecutively going through the book of Psalms. We'll have a couple of guest preachers, which we're excited to receive um, from around the province and outside that will kind of pick a, pick a, a psalm. Uh, they get to choose kind of whatever they want, but, but as a church, we'll be hopefully working our way through all 150 Psalms. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the book of Psalms, so I wanted to just give you a brief introduction before Emily reads. The book of Psalms is the songbook of God's people. It's the melody of the mature Christian life. The word psalm, it, in Greek, it means songs. And so the Psalms is a collection of 150 songs written by many different authors in numerous places in a multitude of circumstances over the course of nearly a thousand years. And it was finished and it was compiled sometime around 400 B.C., so just uh, almost 2,500 years ago it was completed. And these 150 songs, they've been treasured, they've been used by God's people in both public and private worship for millennia. Why should we take time to meditate on these 150 ancient songs? To learn them, to memorize them. We sang one uh, just a moment ago. Uh, to, to use them in prayer. Why should we take this time? Well, for, for a few reasons. First, um, Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible and the summary of the Old Testament. So as we read the Psalms, as we pray them, as we sing them, we'll be given a depth and breadth to our understanding of who God is, of, of what he's spoken to us and what he's done for us in history. John Calvin, another reformer, he called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. The various writers of the Psalms offer prayers to God, which give voice to the everyday griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, and perplexities, which God's people have always experienced. So the Psalms not only teach us about God, but they teach us about ourselves. They'll teach us how we can connect with God in more faithful and more mature ways. In other words, the Psalms instruct us. They teach us who God is and what faithfully living before him amid all of life's ups and downs look like. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering your people uh, in this place to hear you speak to us. Father, as we listen to these songs which you inspired so long ago, we pray that we would have an encounter with you, that we would hear your words, that we would believe them, and that we would be changed by them. We pray that all in Christ's name. Amen. A good introduction to a book, its first sentences, its first chapter, set the tone for all that follows. A good introduction helps you read the rest of the story rightly. So when you start reading, see if you can pick up what this is. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. 
That's from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. You're quickly plunged into a particular kind of world. You understand that you're reading a fantasy. In the first couple paragraphs, in the first chapter, you meet wizards and elves and dragons. You're kind of set up for everything that's going to happen afterwards. When you start reading a sentence like this, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. That's the intro in Charles Dickens's A Tale of Two Cities. You're brought into, very quickly, the gritty, tumultuous drama of the French Revolution. A good introduction sets the tone for all that follows. It helps you read the rest of the story rightly. And both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, which we'll look at next week, they've long been held by God's people to be the introduction to the book of Psalms. Together, they're the entryway into the 148 songs that follow. And like Tolkien and like Dickens' intro, they do some heavy lifting. They help us read the rest of the Psalms rightly. These two Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they introduce us to characters, to themes, to movements that will be present with us until the end of the book of Psalms. So we ought to attend closely to what God is saying in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, we're actually introduced to to one of the grand themes in the Psalms, one, one of the Bible's grand themes, and this is what it is. The way of the righteous is blessed, and the way of the wicked will perish. It's a a gigantic theme. Whenever you read the Bible, you can't escape this this dichotomy, this antithesis, this binary uh, reality. The way of the righteous is blessed, and the way of the wicked will perish. And that's our outline for this morning. If you want to understand the Christian faith, if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand the book of Psalms, this is an excellent introduction. It helps us to read this world rightly. So part one of the sermon the way of the wicked, or the way of the righteous is blessed. That's, that's the first part. The way of the righteous is blessed. The psalmist in Psalm 1, and psalmist is just a fancy word that we use to describe somebody who writes a psalm. They're called a psalmist. The psalmist describes with, with brevity, with poetic beauty, the way of the righteous. That's the first, you know, five or so verses here. In verse 6, we see what he's doing. In verse 6, if you look down there, you see that this entire psalm is trying to contrast two ways that people can live, what he calls the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. If you can remember back to our our Luke series, when uh, when Jesus was preaching in Luke 6, he too contrasted these two ways of living. He called them the blessed life and the life of woe. And this is what the psalms are telling us. There are really just two types of people that are being gathered in the world, the righteous and the wicked. The first thing that we learn about the way of the righteous, the first thing we learn about it is that it's blessed. That's the first words in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. In in Hebrew, um, which is what the Psalms are written in, the word for man is the word ish, and it doesn't simply refer to men. It refers to men and women. Some English translations uh, put this as blessed is the one or blessed is the person. Um, and, And so this is who this Psalm is addressed to. The word blessed, if you can also remember when Jesus used it in Luke, it carries with it this idea of being truly happy and fulfilled, uh, fulfilled to the utmost. But it, it carries even more meaning than just, just happiness. Uh, the word blessed is to have God's own favor resting on you. To be blessed means that your life's trajectory, no matter your current circumstances, no matter what you're facing right now, is headed towards an ultimate good because God himself, the God of the universe, holds you in his hands. The blessed life, the truly blessed life, is one where God is your God and you are his people. To be blessed means you have a relationship with God. You are known and loved by God and you know and love him. 
The way of the righteous, whatever it is, it, it isn't a road towards financial prosperity. It's not a, a, a smoothing out of all of your problems in life. It's not about getting a promotion. It's about, not about getting the respect of your peers or your family or whatever you really want. The way of the righteous is this. It's blessed. It's the only road towards true and lasting blessedness, which is knowing God and being known by him. How might we define the road to righteousness? What's it like to walk on this road? Well, the psalmist gives us two defining characteristics of somebody who's walking on the way of the righteous. First, they're defined by their separation from evil. Hope you see that in verse one. They're defined by their separation from evil. They avoid sin. They avoid all enticements to sin. And that is whatever God says is destructive or deadly to their soul, they keep away from. So in verse one, you see that what this blessed person is who's walking on this way. They don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. They don't stand in the way of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. This is kind of like a negative part of the way of the righteous. It's something that a blessed person just doesn't do. The Psalms are, are highly poetic. You have to understand they're written in a particular kind of way. And if you look at verse one, you see that the psalmist is, is overlapping three sentences consecutively. Um, he's trying to give us this idea of totality. So the blessed person, if you look at verse one, he doesn't walk, stand, or sit in the counsel, way, or seat of the wicked sinners or scoffers. Again, it's this idea of totality. The way of the righteous avoids wickedness at all costs, wherever it's found, all day. The way of the wicked, we can define it as one that is separate from evil. If you think about the last couple of years in, in our world, um, when you think of COVID, I think you actually get a good, a good snapshot of what this is like. People took all kinds of precautions to avoid COVID uh, over the last two years, some more extreme than others. The way we lived in 2019, if you can remember that far back, it feels like longer than a couple of years ago, it is drastically different than how we lived in the early months of 2020. That's when masking and social distancing started, where you know, if you were walking down the sidewalk with someone, you kind of like, you didn't know what to do, so you went on the grass or even on the road, you, you risk getting hit by a car to avoid them. Some people just cut off contact with people altogether. They stopped going to work. They built for themselves home offices. If they went grocery shopping, or you know, if they didn't get them delivered, then they washed their groceries. People got multiple vaccinations. Their, their whole life was turned upside down um, because they, they perceived something external to them as being deadly or dangerous to them. Now, people who didn't really think much of COVID, they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and they, they carried on with life as normal. They might have looked funny at people who were doing all these things. But this is actually a really good picture of how a person on the way of the righteous should act towards sin. Their life should look very different from other people's lives. Some people just kind of shrug their shoulders at evil and enticements towards evil. It doesn't bother them. They just kind of carry on with life as normal. But the person who wishes to be blessed separates themselves from evil. They take action. It makes their life actually look very different from other people's lives. They're willing to turn their, their lives upside down if that's what it takes to avoid sin. They know sin is deadly, that it's a threat to them, and so they act accordingly. And so this is a question for you. If you're a Christian, let me ask you, does your life look different from those who aren't Christians? Do you think, do you speak, do you act any differently? Do you avoid sin and the company of sin? Has this changed your life? Because this is actually God's will for you, that avoiding sin and the enticements of sin would change your life. If you're not a Christian, or you're considering, or you're wondering about what following Jesus is like, I want you to understand this up front. 
Jesus will turn your life upside down. Once he gets into you, you will not be able to carry on like it's business as usual. When you become a Christian, you'll actually have a whole different way of relating to sin. You'll have to avoid it. You might have to take extreme measures if that's what's necessary. Because you can't have your sin and have Jesus too. And so the way of the righteous is first, it's defined by this, by separation from evil, wherever it's found. Second, the second definition of somebody who's walking on the way of the righteous is that they're defined by delight in God's law. They delight in God's law. Again, negatively, we could say they try to avoid evil wherever it's found, in their own hearts, externally, but positively. Look at verse 2. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. That's verse 2. This is a way of saying that, that a person who is blessed, not only do they avoid the counsel of the wicked, they just ignore, they forget about it, but they're, they're wholly committing themselves to something else. They meditate constantly. They turn over in their mind God's counsel, God's words, God's law. When you see God's law there, it's synonymous just with the Bible. It's not simply referring to the Ten Commandments, so that's included, but it's referring to all of God's instructions, all of his teachings, all of the, all of the Psalms, all of Jesus' teachings, his words written to us in the Bible. God's words are to be our constant companion and guide in life. When we focus on God's word, what we're doing is we're cutting, our, cutting out time and attention that we might have devoted to uh, walking, standing, or sitting in the counsel of those who are opposed to God. You might say that the best defense is a good offense. One of the ways that you can actively avoid evil is by purposefully, intentionally pursuing obedience to God's word. And Psalm 1 gives you one way that this is to be, to be done, maybe, maybe the best way, and that is by reading and by meditating on God's word. An old pastor of mine used to say that when you see the word meditate in the Bible, you need to think of the word marinate. It's like when you take a, a good piece of meat and you marinate it overnight in spices or in sauces uh, so that it takes on, it absorbs the flavor and the characteristics of the sauce and the spices. That ought to be your relationship with God's word. You should be routinely soaking in it, letting it soak into you. Not simply, you know, kind of dipping your toe in it, doing a cursory reading and then going on to something else. But meditation is marination. It's letting the aromas, letting the fragrance of scripture soak into your bones. Uh, Richard Baxter was, was a Puritan, and, and he wrote uh, about this process of meditation. He, he put it into two steps. Uh, the first step in meditation is, is fixing your attention, focusing your mind on a truth or promise in the scriptures. So, so, so just meditating on this reality that God is my Father, that He is good, that He is holy, or, or that He has sent His Son Jesus to forgive all of my sins, to set me free from the power and the penalty of sin now and forever. Or that the Holy Spirit now infills me and empowers me so that I can live out a godly life. It's, it's latching on to a truth like that. And then second step, speaking it into your heart until God is present with you. Until God gives you assurance of that truth. Until he comes near to you and you know that it's he himself speaking these words to you. So we're, we're called to, to marinate, to, to, to meditate on God's word. But it's not only that. You see in verse 2, we're to delight in God's word. This again is why this is such a fitting introduction to the book of Psalms. Delighting in God's word, in, in what he speaks to us, is something that we'll encounter over and over again in the Psalms. Psalm, Psalm 19, 
The psalmist sings, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Or, or in Psalm 119, where they sing, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. See, meditating on the scriptures, reading them and thinking about them day and night is not intended to be an exercise in forcing you to eat your vegetables. Rather, the scriptures are given to God's people as a rich, life-giving, soul-satisfying feast. Part of what we should be asking God for, if, if, if that's you and, you and you feel like, I don't know if I desire it quite like the psalmist is describing here, as sweet as money, more to be desired than gold. One of the things that we should ask as we desire to walk in the way of the righteous is asking God, would you please give me new taste buds? Would you, would you give me who has a taste for sin and disobedience, give me new taste buds where I find your word a delight. This is something that God invites you to do. He asks you, uh, for, uh, asks you to ask him for help in this way. Psalm 119, God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. This is God's good pleasure to satisfy you, to give you what you need as you read his word. So ask him. He's pleased to help you. The person who walks in the way of the righteous is defined by their separation from evil, first. Second, by their delight in God's law. And then the psalmist, like happens so often through the book of Psalms, like a good poet, gives us an image to consider this. Gives us a picture of what this kind of life is like. Look at verse 3. The blessed person, the one who walks in the way of the righteous, what are they like? They're like a well-rooted, well-watered, fruitful, and healthy tree. That's the image you need to have of the blessed life. <clears throat> it's a life of vitality, a life of strength, a life of peace, a life of stability. This image, again, we keep on going back to Luke 6, but this is, this is reminiscent of Jesus' sermon in Luke 6, where he talked about the two houses. One house is built on the foundation of rock. The other one is built on a foundation of sand. When the storms came, the house on the rock stood for, firm. And so this image of the tree that Psalm 1 gives to us is a very similar picture. It's not that a tree, if you look at some of the great trees that are around here in Halifax, it's not that they've never experienced a harsh winter or a strong storm. Rather, no matter what the tree faces, it's deeply rooted. It's planted by streams of water. Trees can endure because of where they're planted. And in the same way, the blessed person is somebody that can endure because God himself has planted it. Listen, you, you may have suffered incredible things in your life. You may be suffering right now. You may have experienced things or are experiencing that are, that, are, that are bewildering, that rock you, that make you feel unsteady. God himself offers to plant you. God wants to bless you with roots that he himself will nourish with living water. Again, the blessed life isn't one that is free from trouble but rather it's a life that is strengthened and sustained, that's able to stand in the face of trouble because God himself is with you, because he offers to show his favor to you and to walk with you. So that's part one. The way of the righteous is blessed. It enjoys God's special favor. He is for us. He plants us and he nourishes us. Part two of the psalm. The way of the wicked will perish. 
The section is, is pretty brief. If you look at verse 4, this is in stark contrast to the people, uh, to, to blessed people, is the way of the wicked. What is their life like? What is the image given for them? Verse 4 just gives us one sentence, a single picture. When you're tempted by sin, when you're trying to find life, when you're trying to find joy apart from relationship with God, this is the image for you. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, if you're not familiar with it, it's just the husk of a grain. Uh, in ancient times, harvesters, at harvest time, they would, they would reap the grain, they'd bring it into something called a threshing floor, and they would throw it up into the air. The, the, the good kernel, the seed, it was heavy, so it would just drop to their feet and they could collect it. But, but when they threw it up, the chaff, the outer husk, would just float away in the wind. It would be gone. It would be discarded. And the psalmist tells us the way of the wicked, the final destination of sin, for all who ignore God, who do not delight in him and in his law, it will amount to chaff. The wicked may appear to live a good life right now. They may have success and relationships and a measure of happiness. But no matter how good or how attractive it may seem for the moment, it cannot be sustained. Because life apart from the life of God has no root in it. It is not being watered. It cannot bear lasting fruit. Those who do not separate themselves from evil, who do not delight in God, have no option left for them. Listen, there is no third option that the psalmist gives to us. There are two ways. The way of the righteous is a tree of life. The way of the wicked is chaff. One commentator notes that a tree is characterized by, by three things, generally. Uh, by, by endurance, by life, and by significance. Or by life, by endurance, by significance. First, a tree is a living, breathing thing. It's, it's active, it's growing. Second, it's known by its endurance. It, it, it can last for a very, very long time. Third, by its significance, it, it bears fruit. As it bears fruit, it fulfills the very purpose that it was made for. Chaff is the exact opposite of that. It has no life. It cannot endure. It has no significance. It's good for nothing. Look at verses five through six. Uh, the psalmist says, the way of the wicked will not stand in the judgment. One day, each of us will die. The bell will toll, the bill will come due, and then the winds of God's final judgment will come. Well-rooted trees will be able to stand firm, but the chaff, just like at harvest time, will be driven away. In verse 5, you see that sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked have no share in the blessed happiness and peace that God will give his people. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That is, he, he is attentive to them. He is their gardener. He, he is with them in their trials and storms. But the way of the wicked climactically ends. They will perish. Those who ignore and they try to silence God will one day face the silence of God himself. Again, Psalm 1 is the introduction to the Psalter. It introduces us to a great biblical theme the way of the righteous is blessed, but the way of the wicked will perish. We can't read this psalm without thinking about Jesus. I think as you reflect on this psalm, when you, when you reflect on any of the major themes of the Bible, our attention has to go to Jesus Christ because Jesus alone, Jesus alone is the truly blessed man. 
He is the only completely righteous person ever, the only firmly rooted tree that will never wither, that will always bear fruit. See, in Jesus, we found someone who avoided sin perfectly, who delighted in God's law, who meditated and marinated in it perfectly. And yet on the cross, what do we see? We see someone being treated like chaff, driven away, being destroyed. Yet this is the very reason Jesus Christ came. Jesus became like chaff for you. He faced the judgment and sin, and the judgment and destruction that your sins deserved. And yet through, and yet through Jesus, we who deserve judgment and death itself, instead we get to be planted beside streams of water. Jesus is the ultimate rooted, fruitful, and mature tree. Death couldn't keep him. Three days after the cross, he rose again. And so for us who know that we haven't and that we can't walk perfectly in Jesus' way, we're invited to be planted in him. Uh, it is through faith, it's through repentance in Jesus that when the winds of shame and guilt come, they threaten us, they threaten to topple us, we find our root, we find our nourishment not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. We get to become a branch that gets grafted into the tree of Jesus to have all of his righteousness, all of his rootedness, all of his life-giving power flow into us through faith. That's the life of faith. That is the blessed life. That's what everyone is being invited to. Jesus, the blessed man, the rooted tree, we're invited to join him by faith. We can cast aside our former lives. We can become like him. We can be planted by streams of water. We can yield good fruit in its season. And this is not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. This is what God's offer to you in Psalm 1 is. It is life and blessing. It is rootedness and fruitfulness. But it is only found in the truly blessed man, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Let me bless you first, rather. May the Psalms become the melody of your life, friends. May they deepen and mature your faith. May you be separated from evil. May you be willing to change everything in your life, to turn it upside down if that's what it takes. <clears throat> may you delight in God's law. May you be given new spiritual taste buds so that you can finally taste and see that the Lord is good. May you meditate and marinate in God's word, fixing yourself on his promises until his words ignite your heart with joy. And may you know that on a tree, Christ was crucified to take your sins upon himself so that in him you could become a rooted and fruitful tree. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this psalm, for this song. We pray that it would become part of the melody of our life, that we would be defined by our rejection of sin and our embracing of you. Lord, we need help for that. We thank you for sending Jesus not only to forgive our sins, but to root and to mature us. Father, help us now. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.